Blog Talk Radio. at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I want to welcome the callers and chatters to research at the National Archives and Beyond. Well, special thanks to Afrogenius.com, all of the guests that I've had on the show, and the listeners for helping me reach an exciting milestone yesterday. That's right, milestone. I've had over 100,000 archive listeners. So thank you, thank you, thank you for tuning in. Well, if you have logged in as a guest and wish to participate in the chat, you can sign in through your Facebook account or Blog Talk Radio. I will also open the lines in the second half of the show so that you can ask questions or make a comment. Following the show, you can continue this discussion on the Genealogy and History Forum of Afrogenius.com. Well, last week's show focused on cluster research, and tonight we're going to look at how cluster research helped to unravel the history of a 19th century New York family. Well, my guest caller, Peterson, author of Black Gotham, A Family History of African Americans in 19th Century New York City, will discuss, oh, how she reconstructed the lives of her 19th century ancestors from youth to adulthood. Her book challenges many of the accepted truths about African American history, including the assumption that the phrase 19th century black Americans means enslaved people, and that New York State before the Civil War refers to a place of freedom and that a black elite did not exist until the 20th century. So I am so happy to welcome Carla Peterson, who is a professor in the Department of English at the University of Maryland and affiliate faculty of the Departments of Women's Studies and American Studies and African American Studies to research at the National Archives and beyond. So, Carla, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Bernice. And first of all, congratulations to you on your 100,000 milestone. That's just wonderful. Congratulations. Well, thank you very much. I'm I'm so humbled because I'm just glad that the show is meeting an audience needs. 
and apparently people are tuning in, so that's really great because it's hard work, you know. <laughs> oh, yes, it, I'm sure it is. I'm sure it's very hard work. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, help us understand, first of all, what started you on this research adventure? Well, I came at it from two directions, and the first one you already hinted at when you kind of read or paraphrased um, uh, a paragraph from the beginning of my book about my challenging certain assumptions. And so that was the academic professional part of me that wanted to challenge the assumption that 19th century black Americans refers to enslaved people that New York State before the Civil War denotes a place of freedom, when in fact um, uh, slavery was not abolished until 1827, that blacks in New York City designates Harlem, when in fact in the 19th century blacks lived in in lower Manhattan along with everybody else, Mm -hmm. Um, and then that the black community uh, was a kind of a, a classless society when in fact there was an elite. So you pick the exact um, p- uh, paragraph to point to as the beginning of my uh, of my thinking process, and so um, as an academic, I really wanted to challenge these assumptions. I don't at all want to displace slavery. That is probably the greatest social. Um, moment or movement um, in our history, and I don't want to diminish that at all, but I wanted to enlarge the picture and give a a richer, kind of more nuanced picture of black life in the 19th century, and that would include the the North, in particular northern cities. Um, And so my work as an academic had always been in these antebellum northern cities, uh, Philadelphia, Boston, New York. So that was the academic part of me that wanted to come at this issue. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, there was the personal, because we all have families, and every once in a while we all wonder, well, who was my grandfather? Who was my great? Who was my great-great? And can I find can I find that out? Um, and what happened was that as I started doing both, researching the larger social issues and then um, my uh, uh specifics about my family, the two really came together. And they came together through this idea of memory and forgetting. So if you think of the um, of Beloved and the very end of Toni Morrison's Beloved and the question of whether this is a story to pass on, this is not a story to pass on, um, it struck me how as individuals, as families, as social groups, some of us choose, insist on passing on, mm-hmm. and some of us refrain and, and hold back or even deliberately try to forget. And so that's where I found that my two strands of thinking really came together because my family had given me very little. Um, as I say in my book, all I did was I started with one name, that of my great-grandfather, Philip Augustus White. And if you're chasing an ancestor with the last name of White, you're in for trouble because it's such a common name and it's um, it's also a color, right? Mm-hmm. So searching through databases um, can be quite difficult. But so um, what I confronted right immediately and what stayed with me all throughout the book was this issue of remembering and why it was at some point members of my family chose to let go of their 19th century past and then how I, as a descendant, as a researcher in the archives, and then as a narrator, could put this story together. 
So um, I think that that's what I was trying to do in the book. Right, and so many people, when you when they start talking about their genealogy, you'll hear people say, well, start with what you know, and what about oral history? And so you're saying, well, there wasn't much of an oral history coming out of your family. So you really had to go through some research. So tell us, how did you begin researching your family? Oh, um, I think that many of your listeners will respond to this. Research, I'm convinced, is intuitive. I'm not a trained historian, social historian. I have a PhD in comparative literature, and maybe some of the social health historians out there won't like what I have to say, but I think it is such an intuitive process. So when I started, some of my social historian friends said, oh, start with the census um, and go to the newspapers. But as a literary critic, I just couldn't do that. At least I couldn't go to the census. So I went right to the archives, and that turned out to be the Schomburg um, Center for Research in Black Culture in New York City. Oh, I love the Schomburg. It's, one, it's a oh, wonderful it's wonderful, place. yes. Yes, yes. And actually, they're much stronger in 20th century material than they are in 19th. But I called for the uh, my first week of research, I called for the Harry A. Williamson family papers and started going through them. And little did I know that Harry A. Williamson was a relative of mine and that the the, the family genealogies and stories that he was collecting were those of my family as well. So that was just an amazing find. I did um, too. And now what why did you decide specifically on those papers? Well, um uh it was the only nineteenth century family set of family papers. So um that led me directly to them. And my other great source was I'd, I'd read a book um, uh, written in the 1970s by a woman by the name of Rhoda Golden Freeman, and the title was The Free Negro in New York City Before the Civil War, something like that. So a very dated t- uh, title. Mm-hmm. Um, and also the, 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 the narrative was very dative, dated. It was kind of all fact, but very little kind of interpretation but the fact was her facts were just amazing and absolutely accurate so um, she had left her papers to the Schomburg as well and so I went to look through her papers and this was 1970s pre-computer right Mm -hmm. Um, and so she had um, those files if you all remember that held the five by eight cards yes we all jotted down notes on it right yes so she had 12 of those file um, drawers and or file boxes, and I went through each one of them painstakingly. And so this was actually my first find. I got to the eighth or ninth box, and it had biography ti- as a title, mm-hmm. and I went through page by page. And halfway through, I found a piece of paper um, that had been folded up, and when I unfolded it, it was a page that had been torn from a scrapbook. It was a scrapbook page, and on it, it had the obituary of Philip Augustus White. And I knew that's the one name I had, and that was my great-grandfather. 
So I got very excited and I read through it. And you know that obituaries, if they're any good, they really give an outline of the life, the person, and so forth. Yes. And so then I went to the next piece of paper right after, same thing, cut from the same scrapbook. And it had the name of, it was an obituary honoring Peter Guignon. And I had never heard of him, but I'm like, I might as well read. And so I started reading it. And there in the third or fourth paragraph was his daughter, uh, Elizabeth Guignon, married Philip Augustus White. So right there, I found my great-great-grandfather. So that was just an amazing find. And again, there, the obituary, um, less about about facts, but much more about an interpretation of character. So that was really, really exciting. That's um, so exciting. Serendipity. I, yes, yes, it's really exciting. But the point is, is that you didn't go to the census to find this. No, I went. I went after, and actually, I when I very quickly discovered that I didn't like the census, I <laughs> got the help from one of the archivists at the Schomburg, and uh, you know. They're all too well, you know, archivists. They're so willing to help and and go the extra mile. Um, and so she taught me little things like in the 1870s. I said I can't find anything about Peter Guignon after this Civil War, and, and he's in Brooklyn by then. And she said, well, let me give it a try. And she came back with all this information, and she said, just because his name is spelled G U I. G-N-O-N, does not mean that that's the way it's going to come through in the census. So she tried all of these different spellings and indeed came up with a lot of information about him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is so exciting. This is really wonderful. Well, I wanted to, to have you take us into certain cultural and social settings within uh, your book. Okay. And and I I read something in your book and it talked about the church's history is the uplifting story of black New Yorkers quest to fulfill their religious needs. I want yes. you to say more about the church. Talk to us about the role that your family may have played in the church. And just ha- give us a just a picture of what's going on in 19th century New York. Okay, so before I start, let me just tell um, my listeners really quickly who these two men were. Okay. So Peter Guignon's dates are 1813, 1885, and he is born in New York City, but his parents come from um, Haiti, and I don't know very much about them, um, and so I'm not going to go into that. Uh, He goes to school, comes out, um, does a little bit of nothing for a while. Um, uh, He's a porter. He runs a barber shop. Uh, And then he marries pretty well, a woman, actually his second wife, and I'm descended from the first. Um, And he marries into this family, and because they have a pharmacy, he's given the run of the pharmacy, so he becomes a pharmacist. And um, so he's living quite well at the end. The same with my uh, great-grandfather, Philip Augustus White. It's a rags-to-riches story. Uh, he's born um, in, in actually in Hoboken, New Jersey. His father is a white man from England. His um, mother is a Jamaican woman, a black Jamaican woman. They live together as an intact family, which I think is pretty amazing. Uh, He goes to school, he comes out, he trains as a pharmacist, so he doesn't marry into pharmacy, 
but he trains as a pharmacist and sets up a pharmacy in lower Manhattan. Um, and he goes from retail to wholesale and makes quite a lot of money. So the point of the background uh, to this is that he gives back in two areas. So he's done well, but he's by no means forgotten his community, and he gives back to the church, and he gives to the cause of black education. And those that's what his life was all about. So you ask about the church. So um, my family were Episcopalians, and that might strike people as strange because most people think what Baptist, A&E, or something like that. Um, but first of all, um, it was in New York at least, it was the Episcopalian, the Episcopal Church that had reached out, was, was the white denomination that had reached out first to blacks, uh, black New Yorkers, and encouraged them to come into the fold. And many of these black New Yorkers were the servants, or perhaps in earlier days, the slaves of the white elite who worshipped um, at Trin Trinity. And so it seems like um, even when faced with discrimination, they chose to affiliate with a white denomination that would after that after all had money and would support them, um, as opposed to try and go it alone and perhaps not make it. Now the example, of course, of the AME Church proves otherwise. They made it very very well. Um, so eventually, blacks who worshipped at Trinity, but they didn't like being put in the segregated pew, they didn't like not um, having enough um, uh, Sunday school education, they wanted a place to bury their dead. Um, and so they petitioned to have their own parish, and that became St. Philip's Episcopal Church, which was my family's church. Okay. So there's several things I can say about the church. One is, of course, it was a religious institution, and I want to come back to that in, in a minute. Um, one of the things that St. Philip's, as it was structured, was very democratic, so that everybody could come, anybody who wanted to could join the church, whether you know high or low or whatever. Um, there were no taxes. You didn't at least initially pay for a pew or whatever. So the structure of St. Philip's itself was fairly democratic, although those the vestry was pretty much, you know, those who could read and write and so forth. It was a social activist church. So when the anti-slavery movement got going, they were there. When black education got going, they were there. Um, but there are other aspects of being an Episcopal that I think are really important. First of all, the Anglican Church, or what it called itself, the Anglican Communion, was worldwide. So this gave black, uh, black New Yorkers a chance that I think that was important to them to look beyond the narrow, narrower confines of nation, of race, and whatever, and to say, we belong to this worldwide communion that goes as far back as the first bishop of Rome, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that that was very important. Um, another thing that they did was to insist on their equality within the denomination. So for when St. Philip's became a parish, they were told they could be a parish, but they couldn't become a member of the diocesan convention. And for those who don't know, this was the um, it was the kind of um, 
secular arm of the church, and it's where people, where parishes sent delegates every year to a convention, um, and that's where money got um, divided up and all these important um, financial decisions are made and so forth. And there is great opposition to St. Philip's becoming a genuine member of the Diocesan Convention. Mm -hmm. And blacks, in particular, my great-grandfather, Philip Augustus White, fought tooth and nail for a period of 15 years to have this happen. And they finally did it in 1853. So another way of considering um, the role, the, 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 the meaning of being part of the Episcopal Church in New York State was their ability to claim, finally, to win the battle and claim their equality with white parishes. And the last thing I wanted to say was, and I think this is probably actually the most important, is that um, it was the aesthetics of the church. These men and women were deeply, deeply religious. And there was something that truly appealed to them about the Episcopal service, um, the calm, the order. Um, it was full of kind of pomp and circumstance. So walking down the aisle with white and purple robes, um, the clanging of bells, incense, incense, communion, the hymns. I think this had a deep appeal to my family and their friends in what was otherwise a totally chaotic world outside, right? Mm -hmm. um, the world of prejudice, of racism, of New York competitiveness. I just think of it as a truly sacred space, which they could, you know, just cherish every Sunday. Right. And as far as documents, what types of, of documents did you find on St. Philip's Episcopal Church to give you that feeling of how your family uh, just uh, embrace the Episcopalian uh, religion? Um, so there are two sets of documents. There are documents down at Trinity Church. They have an archive. And then St. Philip's has an archive. They're the Vestry Minutes that start in 1845 maybe mm -hmm. and continue all the way through. And St. Philip's has placed them at the Schomburg um, Research Center so that you can go there and look at them. And what you'd see, so for example, is the workings, for example, the, the fight over becoming members of the diocesan convention. Um, you get that in the St. Philip's Vestry Minutes, just in great detail year after year. We're going to petition, we're going to demand for equality, et cetera, et cetera. And then you also get beautification plans. So this is a church that doesn't have a lot of money, but they save up money for Christmas greens, you know, for mm -hmm. December. Um, they insist over and over again. Um, they talk about the importance of the choir and getting a good organist and getting uh, people to sing and so forth. Um, there's a record of them buying their cemetery lot in the late 1850s so that they could all be, you know, they lived together in life next to one another in the church. Now they could die and be together um, in death. So you you get things like that all the way through the um, the vestry minutes, yeah. yeah. Oh, that is just so wonderful. Now, you mentioned, I mean, the purchasing the cemetery plots, but what about the whole African uh, burial ground? 
where was it in relationship to St. Philip's? Okay, so that that's the African burial ground or Negro's burial ground is a fascinating history. Um, and that was an 18th century cemetery um, for black New Yorkers. So it was established in the very early 18th century. And at that time, it way lay way beyond the city limits. And nobody cared about the ground, and it was considered to be common ground, you know, part of the city, and they didn't care, the city didn't care, um, because it was kind of marshy and um, out of the way. But the city is encroaching up north. It's building um, throughout the 18th century and growing and growing, and you can't go south because you're at the tip of the island and you're growing up, going up north. And all of a sudden, the Negro's burial ground becomes prime real estate um, pr property, especially for real estate speculators. And so um, uh, a family comes forward, or a set of families, and they claim that the land is theirs, that it was given to um, an ancestor, um, and uh, that in uh, over time um, the family died out or um, stopped being pre preoccupied with, with the land, and that the city took it over, but that they, in fact, had title to it. And that turned out to be absolutely true. So in 1795, when they won their law case, that was the end of the Negro's burial ground. And so blacks moved to um, black New Yorkers um, had a cemetery on Christie Street, mm -hmm. and then they uh, the city decided um, to uproot that, and that's when um, uh, blacks finally um, bought property among other places um, in what is now Cypress Hill Cemetery, which is both now part of Brooklyn and Queens. So you can imagine then would be very far out yes, um, very far uh, for out. that time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But um, that's, again, a really interesting issue about um, memory and forgetting because, after all, a, a cemetery is where you memorialize your dead and commemorate them and honor them, and all of a sudden it's no longer there, and it's in 1992 when the um when the government federal government wants to establish a building down there and they're doing a survey and they come across all these bones and skeletons and we're about ready to throw them away when the black community in New York and elsewhere galvanized and said wait this was once the negro's burial ground we need to do research on the bones and that's that's what finally happened it was a fight but it finally happened and now mm -hmm. the area is a is a historic monument um and camp and it's been turned into a museum and it can't be touched right right well we're going to take a quick break come back and continue this discussion about your findings and okay. about your wonderful book okay okay quick break
reach at the National Archives and Beyond Block Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, where I will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy questions. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. Well, you have been listening to Carla L. Peterson, the author of Black Gotham, and she has just shared with us information on how she started her research to find more and more information about her 19th century family. Well, we have also heard about the church. Well, let's Talk a little bit more about, let's say, you talk in particular, Carla, about the public health issues in the community. And I share it with you. I'm I'm a public health professional, so I was pretty much struck by what you were saying about the, the community. So tell us more about the public health issues in the community. Sure. Um, it's a fascinating topic. And my father was in public health, so that we all have something in common. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, all right. The first thing to know that um, health-wise, New York City or Manhattan in the early 19th century was a very nasty place to be in um, for everybody, blacks and whites, rich and poor, um, and so forth. So um, uh, Hurricane Sandy is a reminder of this that the Manhattan ground lay very, very low, and much of it in that period was what was called made ground, i.e. it was it had been watery or marshy land yes. and was then fill, filled in um, so that, people, so that um, real estate speculators could build on top of it. So it was a um, really, really unhealthy place to be. Um, and so um, their epidemics just swept across the city uh, periodically, starting in the um, 1700s, and that was pretty. It was that was yellow fever, and I think the last big yellow fever epidemic was in 1822, and after that it was cholera. And um, in the 1850s, I think it was, um, a doctor in London discovered that cholera comes uh, from a bacteria that comes from contaminated water. Mm -hmm. Um, And so just think of um, uh, lower Manhattan that's made on all this marshland. And so the the pools of water that are lying around the marshy ground, um, there's no good sewer system. Ventilation in in the houses of poor is of the poor people is just terrible, and so forth. So it's a real breeding ground for cholera. Um, but people at that time did not understand that they didn't know anything about contaminated water, and they described it because. Because cholera hit the poor mostly because they were the ones who lived in the most unhealthy places and under the most unhealthy circumstances. They blamed the poor for cholera and they blamed in particular their moral behavior. So all of this gets ascribed to the immorality of the poor, the Irish and others, but in particular of black people. Um, and it is their immoral behavior. Um, you know, sexual um, uh, lack of hygiene, et cetera, et cetera, that is the cause um, of cholera. So um, uh, what happens is that um, the way in which 
the community responds is in large part by blaming them and yelling at them and so forth, but also by quarantine. So quarantining populations was a very was an important um, thing. Um, and then in terms of remedies, there was very little that they knew how to do other than say, you know, be moral people. Um, and when you read about the remedies, they're they're pretty horrific. Uh, horrific. Most of it is by per, by laxatives and purging, um, and so and much of it just did not help at all. Um, and these epidemics kind of lasted until they were ready to die out. Well, the the, the thing is, though, your family. I mean, they had they were connected in some way to the health community because of their uh, work in the pharmaceutical uh, community. So what role did they play at this time in dealing with some of the health issues? So I never found anything directly tying them to working on cholera cases, but I'm sure that they did. And I really wonder whether um, my great-grandfather, Philip Augustus White, so he apprenticed in the pharmacy of a man by the name of James McCune Smith, who was um, one of our first doctors. Uh, he uh, was not, he'd done high school in this country, but no um, medical school would admit him. And so he went to the University of Glasgow Medical School in, um, in, in Scotland and then came back. And he went over in 1832, which was the time of the first big cholera epidemic. And there is a story about him watching um, a, a sailor seized with cholera um, uh, who gets cholera on the ship and the efforts made to save him. And I think the sailor was saved. And so my great-grandfather, Philip Augustus White, apprentices with James McCune Smith, and I'm sure that cholera was very much um, on their mind. The next big uh, um, uh, epidemic is in 1849, and my great-grandfather just started his pharmacy in 1847. Um, and so um, I, didn't, I never found any direct evidence, but I'm sure that that was one of the, of the things that they wanted most to do was to take care of all of those in the community. And they did not limit their clientele to black people. They served blacks and whites alike. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, I see them as true healers for, you know, for whom the, uh, the oath is to heal anybody who's sick and that they really did that. Mm -hmm. So, but what's also interesting, and again, I can't tie it directly to any um, uh, to either Philip or to James McCune Smith, is that in the 1840s, there are incredible advances that are ma being made in the field of pharmacy. Um, and that basically um, scientists had started to learn. First of all, you would find a plant and say um, it, the plant does something. So rhubarb makes a good, strong laxative. Um, and, you know, plants, they realized had certain properties. Yes. But it's in the 1840s that um, because of um, uh, advances in chemistry, that people were able to identify the active agent in plants and to extract it. So they came into pharmacy at the time when all these new, exciting um, discoveries um, were being made. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things that I also noticed, though, is that when you talk about 19th century 
New York. And you then talk about schools and Philip Augusta White going off to be educated. What about the the others who were being educated in the community? And you mentioned something about the Mulberry Street School. So share with us more about this school. That was an amazing school, really an amazing school. Um, so it is started in the late 1790s by the New York Manumission Society. So this is a group of white men, uh, mostly Quakers, but some Episcopal, uh, Episcopalians, who want to um, see the end of slavery in New York State. And one of the things that they decide is that one of the, the, the ways um, to promote the abolition of slavery is to educate black youth. So they start the uh, uh, a whole bunch of schools. The first one is the Mulberry Street School, and it's the most famous. And I think just serendipitously, the most um, young boys who later become um, the leaders of New York's black community, but also nationwide, all end up at that school more or less in the same grade, or at least they're there at the same time. So my great-great-grandfather, Peter Guignon, is there, and he was not a brilliant student, and he wasn't brilliant later in life. As I said, he got his, his best job through through nepotism, through marriage. Um, <laughs> okay. But he went, he went to school with other just amazing young men. So James McCune Smith is one who I've talked about, this doctor, uh, pharmacist, but beyond that, political activist, um, he, an essayist, he wrote poetry, he was a statistician, There's, he was a real renaissance man, there was nothing this man couldn't do. So another person would have been um, Alexander Crummel, who we don't know enough about, uh, and he was mentored to, years later, in the 1880s, mentored to W.E.B. E. Du Bois, and Alexander Cromwell was the first one who wrote about the soul in the way that Du Bois does in The Souls of Black Folk. Mm-hmm. And Du Bois always acknowledged him as his mentor and always honored him. Um, Cromwell died in 1898. Um, and there's a chapter in Souls of Black Folk that's devoted to him. Um, but we've kind of forgotten about Cromwell, and that's really, really too bad. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing I can say about the the um, school is so it was started by white men, and yet several of the young men who come out for, after having been students there become mentors to the next generation, and that would be Philip White. So Philip um, goes to another school called Lawrence Street School, and the principal teacher of boys is a man by the name of Charles Reason, who had gone to school with that to the Mulberry Street School with that group of young men? He was one of them. So he teaches Philip. Um, his uh, brother Patrick Reason is the first person Philip goes to when he gets out of school for an apprenticeship. Um, and that Patrick was a very well-known engraver. 
and um, the story is that Philip lasted three months, and then he showed no talent, and then he said, I want to go into James McCune Smith's pharmacy, and that's what happened. So this whole idea of mentorship, I think, is really, really important. Mm-hmm. But now, when you talk about the mentorship, what about the women? And what were you able to find out about the the women in um uh, yeah, 19th century. Well, <laughs> yeah. So, so the men were taught that uh, they were given a liberal arts education. So it's reading, writing, arithmetic, some history, uh, history, geography, natural science, and because um, uh, being a sailor was one of the things that black men could readily do in this period. There was a lot of geography, there was astronomy, there were courses in navigation. So women had went to separate school, um, and they had the same basic um, three R's, reading, writing, arithmetic, geography, history, but then they were given classes in the domestic arts, so, mm-hmm. you know, sewing and cooking um, and things like that. Um, where the real difference comes out is afterwards when the black men become activists in the community um, and they're founding political associations and literary societies and um, they're becoming entrepreneurs and um, women are or, 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 or starting um, educational societies to help black children. Um, and becoming having trades and businesses, uh, becoming doctors, pharmacists, uh, teachers, um, ministers, and black women are nowhere to be seen. And I, that was one of my great sources of frustration mm-hmm. um, in trying to research uh, black New Yorkers and black New York uh, uh, women because they're there to a much greater extent in cities like Philadelphia and Boston. Um, but not so much in in New York. And is there a reason that you you know can think of that the women were not as uh, visibly active? Yes, um, I think so. Um, New York was more conservative than Philadelphia and Boston, and that I think is in part because. Black New Yorkers were New Yorkers, after all, and they followed the taste of the town. Um, Black men were preoccupied. They had two major preoccupations that really excluded women. One was that black New York men had the right to vote up until 1821, and that vote, the right to vote was taken away from them in amendment to the state constitution uh, in 1821. And they had to meet a pretty stiff um, poll tax um, in order to be able to vote. Mm-hmm. So their first, really even before they get into the anti-slavery movement, their first political activist movement starting maybe in the late 1820s is to get back the, that right to vote, which had so much to do with their sense of manhood. Mm-hmm. So one way was to repeal the amendment, but another, until that was done, was to make enough money to be to meet the 
the the um, financial burden, right? And I think it was $250 or something like that. And so there was an emphasis placed on making money. And, of course, that fill, fit in very well with the ethos of New York City, um, you know, a place where you go and make, make money. money. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. Another thing is that the anti-slavery movement is very weak in New York because New York, um, white New Yorkers had incredible ties, very strong ties to the South. Um, New York was a commercial city, and what mm-hmm. they wanted was good relations with the South so that they could bring up, cotton could be brought up to New York, and they would transform it into different kinds of textiles and so forth. So the anti-slavery movement, or at least the interracial anti-slavery movement, is relatively weak. And that's where a lot of women in Philadelphia and Boston uh, become activists in these female anti-slavery organizations that have both white women and black women um, as collaborators. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I did find black women in certain places. One is as teachers, and that's going through the records of the Public School Society and the Board of Education. But so far, so far, all I found were names, um, um, you know, Sarah Enos, Eliza Richards, Caroline Rowe, but no stories about them. I don't oh. have anything other than their names. Oh, so uh-huh. that is something left for a researcher to do <laughs> is to go and try and find some of the names. Yes, the absolutely. other thing that I found out. And this was after I finished the book, and it was just kind of reflecting on it sometime last year. There, New York was a stop on the Underground Railroad, mm-hmm. and so conductors would send escape slaves up, at, you know, from the south to the north, and they would stop in New York and be hidden until they could go on. So there were very active vigilance committees in New York, and the vigilance com- uh, committees took the escaped slaves and hid them in black homes until they were ready to go on. Mm-hmm. And it was women. It was the women in the home who took care of the slaves, the escaped slaves. And I think that's where a very important part of their activism was. But how do we know about it? You can't talk about, you know, nobody was going to talk about the Underground Railroad or where they'd hidden the slaves. I mean, that had to be kept secret. That's right. That was a secret. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. because you're talking about the danger. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. For all. all. Yes, yes. (laughs) But when I read accounts um, from after the Civil War, uh, by women, mainly by daughters, looking back and talking about their homes, it was always mother welcomed the slave, mother fed the slave, mother found new clothes for the slaves, mother, you know, soothed the fears of the slaves. It's really, really amazing. Oh, yeah. that is amazing. Yeah, yeah. That, is, that yeah. is definitely amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, you I'm I'm going to get I'm kind of close to the end, but I want people to call in and to make comments. Uh, we do have a comment, nurses on the Red Rover, a Navy hospital ship during the Civil War with Carolyn Rowe, uh, et cetera. They're just mentioning that oh. in the in the chat. Oh, oh. <laughs> Interesting. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But you talk about black aristocracy. 
Yes. And so share with us just what did you find? In terms of? Of your family, uh, how the the whites viewed the blacks, and uh, you you made two two comments about aping and imitation, and I'd just like you to say a little bit more about that. Um, okay, but I'm going to start someplace else. Sure. So the idea of saying they, they call themselves an aristocracy, and I refer to them in my book as elite, and saying that immediately implies condescension, looking down, so forth and so on. Mm-hmm. And there is that element. And if the program is of racial uplift, it's lifting, it's bending down to lift up the less fortunate. But what I want to, and that's true, but what I want to point out is that there's a belief that anybody and everybody could be lifted up. Uh And there was the idea among the black elite that they always needed to uplift themselves. There's no point at which they'd finish their education. Uh So that the the program of self-improvement among the black elite was really um, very, very strong. And um, there was also this idea of racial solidarity. We're not going to leave them behind and go and just pay no attention. We're all in this together. And so what we need is a program of racial uplift. And that, of course, centered on education. So what, um, what the education was really largely about Western culture, although there was a great pride in being African. So the term African is applied to blacks. They applied it to themselves for much of the period. We are African and we are proud of it. But there was this um, also taking what I would call the best of Western culture and thinking of themselves, of, of yourself as cosmopolitan, that is laying claim to the whole world. And that's where this idea of imitation as opposed to aping comes in. Mm -hmm. Frances Harper writes and says, um, and here's a quote, by aping I mean servile imitation or abject mimicking. So it would just be mimicking the outside without any thought or any feeling. Imitation um, implies emulation improvement, and also the possibility of surpassing, right, uh-huh. of, of doing so well and imitating that you're, you, you're even better. And then in the 1870s, Alexander Crummel, who I referred to, had this wonderful line where he says, we are all cosmopolitan thieves. And what he's saying is Would that... Would you say that again, we're all cosmopolitan... Thieves. Okay. And that what happens is that all societies have advanced by imitating. So the Romans imitated from the Greeks. They took the best of Greek culture and imitated it and made it their own. And so he saw this as the normal progression of society and said that black Americans were also cosmopolitan thieves. They would take the best of Western culture and the best of their own and produce something unique. Mhm, mhm. However, in some instances, if blacks were perceived as imitating, they were also perhaps put in a very bad position of maybe even being killed because they were imitating. Oh yes, oh yes. 
Mm-hmm. And of course, that's the idea. I mean, what lies that behind that is white supremacist doctrine mm-hmm. that the that the black is naturally inferior and cannot advance. So anthropologists like to talk about ascribed traits versus mm-hmm. achieved. Ascribed mm-hmm. is what you're born with. No way you can change that. And achievement is what you can acquire. And for blacks, and listen to Barack or President Obama, for blacks, um, everything is about education and the, poss- and, and the possibility of achievement. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes, at the risk of being killed. At the risk of being killed. Yeah. Well, there's a comment coming out of the chat, and um, the question was, did you mention your great-great-aunt Marissa? Maricha. Maricha. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I didn't mention her, and I will say that I got a lot of my material um, from her because um, she um, wrote an 85-page um, memoir in draft form that's at the Schomburg. And her father asked her to do it because he said I wanted to do it, um, and uh, but I got no uh, no uh, further than the title, which was going to be the gentleman gentleman in black. So you must do it. So she writes this in the 1920s, shortly before her death. And what's interesting there is in the beginning, the she is an observer of what goes on. She's met Philip White and George Downing and James McCune Smith and Alexander Crummel. And by the end, she's an actor in her own right. She's a school teacher. She becomes the assistant principal of an elementary school in Brooklyn. Um, and she becomes a club woman. So under the um, tutelage of Ida B. Wells, who comes up to New York after the devastating lynching in in her hometown in Memphis. Um, And she says to the women of Brooklyn and New York, you need to start a club. And so they start the Women's Loyal Union, and they follow very much um, the guidelines for political activism set by Ida B. Wells. So that's – and I trace that in my book. It's a marvelous transmutation from – Maricha as, you know, the observer to the actor and a powerful woman. So women really come together um, in New York, at least, in the 1880s um, in the club, uh, as school teachers in the club um, movement. Also during the Civil War, in the war effort, they become very active in the war effort. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Well, we're getting close to the end of the show, and I just would like you to just give us some parting words uh, regarding your research and, and your ability to just recapture just everything about your family, and also the title "Black Gotham," just say one thing about that. Okay, so as I'm sure everybody knows, Gotham was the name given to New York um, way back when, and it was given by a man by the name of Washington Irving, who's a very well-known, popular. Uh, um, uh, um, man of letters of the time. He was very popular and he wrote a mocking essay in which he referred to New York as Gotham and it's uh, got a medieval English background that I won't go into right now. And people just picked up the term and referred to New York as Gotham and to themselves as Gothamites. So the point I want to make with the title is that my the black community 
they referred to Gotham and to themselves as Gothamites. So they're cl make, laying claim to being insiders. They're not outsiders from Africa or wherever. They are New York born and bred, and they are that's where they where they belong. And the other thing I do with it is that um, geography is so important in the book, and I didn't have time to go into that today. But um, but basically, where people lived and who was their neighbor and um, where their businesses were, where their churches were, all of this mattered um, because New York at that time was not segregated. Um, blacks did not live in a place like Harlem, um, which was um, a residential segregation and occupational and, and institutional and so forth. They lived um, in pockets all over the city. Um, and so it's really laying claim um, to the city. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, so as far as your parting remarks concerning the book, what what do you want people to do, and how can they find your book? Um, it's on Amazon, and um, I also have a digital archive, and the address is really based on the book, and the address is really simple. It's archive.blackgothamarchive.org. And my parting word is that on reflection, I think that family history is so important um, going beyond genealogy, which is just getting names and dates, but the ability to put stories to those names. And the idea that we can maybe create our history through family. When in the 19th century, for example, blacks were considered, black Americans were considered incapable of having a family, of knowing anything about family ties, mm -hmm. about the ties that bind, about nurture, about love, about commitment. So, of course, slaveholders said, well, we can sell off children, we can sell off mother, father, husband, wife, whatever. So I think to insist that we can create our own history based on the family and that we know an awful lot about family and family life and what it means to be in a family and have a family I think is really important. And, and and it is, indeed, it truly is. Well, thank you so very much. And those of you who have not purchased Black Gotham, A Family History of African Americans in 19th Century New York City, please do so. Thank you. And, by the way, where are you speaking next, just in case people want to go and hear you oh, and see yes. you? So I'm going to be in New York City. This is March 9th. It's the 9th Annual Harlem Afro-American Genealogical Conference. Mm -hmm. I think that's what it is. So um, I don't know the exact venue, but um, you can – I haven't been told. As time gets closer, you can uh, Google that. I, it's at some place in, on 125th Street in, in Harlem. So that's the 9th Annual annual Harlem Afro-American Genealogical Conference on March 9 from 1 to 5 in the afternoon. Okay, and then there's a, a, a final comment coming out of the chat that every community should have its story told. Oh, yes. I love that. Yes. I love that. Yes, yes, yes. 
Okay, everyone, I just want to tell you about what's happening next week on Research at the National Archives and Beyond. I'm actually having a special show on Monday, February the 25th at 3 p.m. The title of the show is The Inventive Spirit of African Americans' Patented Ingenuity by author Patricia Carter Sloby. She is giving us a wonderful, detailed description of all of the various inventions by blacks beginning in 1821 to present. She is a registered patent agent and researcher and has interviewed on television and radio shows to discuss minority inventors and is the past president of the National International Property Law Association. So tune in on Monday, February the 25th at 3 p.m. So I'd like to say to, to you, Carla, good night, and to everyone, Thank you so much for tuning in. And remember, your ancestors left footprints. And as Carla has just shared with us, footprints that went all through the community, not just who had whom. So let's look at all of the dynamics going on in a community to tell your family story. You can find those clues through oral history, Family Records, Research at the National Archives and Beyond. So let's keep this conversation going on theafrogenius.com and also like my Facebook page, Research at the National Archives and Beyond. And also remember to listen to the African Roots podcast tomorrow with Angela Walton-Raji. So thank you for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett. And remember, all of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast. So good night, everyone. Good night, Carla. Good night, and thank you so much for having me. You're welcome.